This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. Our guest, Rachel Bloom, is best known for co-creating and starring in the Emmy Award-winning TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She's now co-starring in a new Hulu series called Reboot. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado about the show and her career. Rachel Bloom knows a lot about dark TV comedies. She co-created and starred in the musical comedy series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She also co-wrote all the songs for the show. Her first real comedy job was writing for a sitcom when she was in her early 20s. She'll talk about her experience in that writer's room and how tough it was for her as the youngest writer and the only woman a little later. Now she's playing a TV writer in the new Hulu comedy series called Reboot. Rachel Bloom's character Hannah is a writer who has a love-hate relationship with a popular family sitcom from the 2000s called Step Right Up. It's about a stepdad who moves in with his new wife, her son, and her ex-husband. Hannah wants to reboot the series with the original cast, but make the show darker and more current. Gordon, the creator of the original show, also happens to be Hannah's estranged father who, like the plot of Step Right Up, left her and her mom when she was a kid. It turns out that her dad has creative rights to the series and wants to work on the reboot, which makes Hannah want to quit. Here's a scene from the show. The original cast members want her to stay, so they all meet in her father's office. The father's played by Paul Reiser. The cast members include Judy Greer, Johnny Knoxville, and Keegan-Michael Key. Obviously, we were all thrown yesterday to find out that Hannah was your daughter, but, you know, family dynamics, they're so... I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. Could you find it while I'm still young, please? Gordon, we want her to stay for the good of the show. Hey, Just yesterday, I asked her to stay, and she said, quote, I'd rather work at SeaWorld. And then I had to explain to him why that's an insult. Who doesn't love the Dolphin Spectacular? The Dolphins. So what is it, now you want to stay? What? I want to do the script that I wrote. Really? Because it felt like you wanted to shove it up. No. I... I want to tell the truth, okay? Because you based Lawrence on yourself and your new family, and you left out the old family that you... Abandoned. Didn't abandon. I sent checks. your money. Whoa. (laughs) Nice. Nice to know you got your mom's mouth. This is the magic. This is how we take this show to the next level. Gordon, come on. Lawrence is complicated now. Flawed. The the, the confrontation in the last scene alone is... I mean, it's it's revelatory. It's profound. It rips your soul out. None of that sounds funny. It's my life, and it wasn't funny. Okay. What about you guys? You, you, You seem very quiet. I... I do like there's no kid in it. I like that I'm not a grandma. That's pretty much the last stop in Hollywood. Grandmas, playing a judge on Law & Order, dead. All right, so basically that's my choice. I do your script or I can go jump in a lake. I mean, I don't care where you jump. Rachel Bloom, welcome back to Fresh Air. What was interesting to you about the character you play, Hannah? Someone who has kind of begrudgingly has a soft spot or a love for old kind of nostalgic sitcoms, but also wants to make it more current and darker. Well, I have that relationship to nostalgia. And so I think that Hannah wanting to take something from her childhood that she's nostalgic for, but make it dark, is so akin to something I would do as a writer, but also that she's nostalgic for this show because it was basically representing the father she wished would be around. And this was her only way as a kid to connect with her father 
oh, it just like, it's really heartbreaking. And, and I have a theory that she originally wrote this reboot script as an exercise in therapy <laughs> and then realized, wait, is this good? Do I want to pitch this? Well, you know, one thing that your character is dealing with is a sitcom being loosely based on life. You know, viewers find out that her father, who's played by Paul Reiser, left her and her mother and moved into a house with a new wife and a stepkid. And that was the basis for the sitcom. Step right up. And Hannah, your character, wants to make it darker, you know, reflecting that it wasn't all light. You know, it was a darker story. Uh, what do you think about how these characters are dealing with turning real life into comedy? You know, how do you deal when you're bringing in your real life into comedy, even, you know, whether it's light or dark? Yeah, well, I think for Hannah, it's interesting because especially in the first episode, the sense I got from her is that she was partially doing it to tarnish her father's legacy. And I think at one point I was talking to Steve and he's like, it, it would be as if someone took Phil Dunphy from Modern Family and was like, you know what? Phil Dunphy is actually a terrible person and there's this whole side of him you didn't know and let's ruin that character. It would be heartbreaking. And we should say Steve Levitan, he, among other things, created the show Modern Family. Oh, yeah. But she does also want to make it a good show. And I know for me... It's kind of a an instinct smell test thing. I think it depends on the moment. It depends on the joke. At the end of the day, it's what feels true. With Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, we dealt with a lot of things like romantic obsession leading into mental illness and abandonment, some things that are theoretically very dark, and then we made songs about them. And I know that all I can speak to is that the times that we made things funny or lighten them were just coming from a, a personal a personal place. I mean, I think of the song in season three of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend called Maybe She's Not Such a Heinous Bitch After All. And it's a really up-tempo, Ronettes-style, 1960s girl group song um, that's basically a love song of Rebecca hoping that maybe her mother isn't as abusive and terrible as she once thought. And um, some of the things she says in it are absolutely awful because her relationship with her mother is awful. But when you have that hope that maybe, maybe your parent this time won't disappoint you, it feels light, like falling in love. So it sort of matches the kind of song it is, too. Yeah, exactly. So I think that Hannah is that kind of struggle that she's going through with the light and the dark of, okay, I'm taking this thing from my childhood that I loved but also represented my abandoned dad and I'm doing it to kind of ruin my father's legacy but also to heal myself. I, I get that. I get those conflicting thoughts. Well, we're talking about reboot here, but you did just mention that song from uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and we actually have it. So let's hear a little bit of it right now. It's the song... From season three of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, here's Rachel Bloom. I used to think my mother was the worst That if she didn't kill me Singing, the flowers are pink. Yes, 
talk about light and dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that song. It, it was it was really fun to write, um, <laughs> cathartic to write. Um, and I, I just have to say, like, my songwriting partner on that, as well as co-composer Adam Schlesinger, who um, passed away of COVID in 2020, and, and, and him and his producing partner, Stephen Gold, God, they just killed the production of that because th- that Phil Spector wall of sound is not easy to recreate. And it to find someone who can both write and produce that and then the next day do like a Kesha style pop song, it's just unheard of. So I, God, I just love that song. Um, a little later, I'll ask you even more about songwriting. But getting back to reboot, your character, Hannah, is a co-executive producer or co-showrunner of this new show, this new reboot of the old sitcom. And your character kind of represents the new kind of comedy, more current, for lack of a better term, edgier. And Paul Reiser's character, Gordon, you know, the guy who created the original sitcom in the in the early aughts, uh, he represents, you know, that older classic sitcom, like you were saying, with the studio audience. And there are lots of scenes in the writer's room, you know, that your character has to run. Your character has hired young writers, two women of color, TV writers, a gay male playwright. And Paul Reiser's character, he's brought in these writers he's comfortable with, like these old writers who have like, been around for decades. Um, and they're all in this writer's room together, often clashing. Um, I'm going to play a scene from um, one of the episodes. Here's a scene where they're all together in that room trying to solve a problem in the script. Can you not do that, please? You want me to throw them on the floor? That's where your nuts usually are. I don't love how much you talk about Alan's genitals. I'm sorry. Low-hanging fruit. How does she do it? Okay, can we please get back to the story? Okay, anybody. Josie and Whitney. All right, Josie and Whitney. Were we too quick to dismiss the hot, clumsy delivery guy? No, no. you've got to stop pitching that. I'm telling you, it would work. It's too sitcom It's funny. None of us laughed. You know, between us, we have 150 years in this business, and you guys haven't laughed at anything coming from this side of the table. I don't know. I laughed at some of the sounds coming out of Alan. Story of my life. I love onions. They don't love me. I'm telling you, it could be symptoms of something serious. I- I'm sorry. I-, I just think some of the jokes you guys tell are a, a little corny. Yeah, and a lot of them are wildly offensive. They're like the ones my Mima tells at Thanksgiving. She sounds funny. Does she have a blow for the bee scene? Okay, yeah. I'm gonna just state the obvious. So we're coming from two entirely different planets here. Listen, sometimes it takes a while for a room to come together. We're never gonna come together. Selma, don't even. Now, in your memoir uh, called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, you talk about your first writing job, and it was back when you were in your early 20s. It was on a sitcom. How did that writer's room, the job, your real job, compare to the way the writer's room is portrayed on this show? Well, so it's really interesting. So it was my first writing job. I was the only girl on staff, only woman. Um, I was 23. I had done a single music video and I'd written a single, what we call spec script, which is a, a script of an existing TV show. And I'd written, so I'd written this spec of 30 Rock. And I got hired and I was terrified. And um, I got in this room and what was interesting was there was a, I'd say, pocket of guys 
who weren't even the upper level writers, and I'd actually known a couple of them from doing comedy, and their way of pitching in a room was actually very old school in the way that you'd see in Reboot. It was mean. It was like mean, and they were very, very good. They were just whip smart joke writers, but they couldn't do it without bringing you down. So this idea of comedy that some people have of, of in order to be funny, you also have to be mean to anyone who isn't as, as funny as you are, uh, I think is a very old school idea. And actually Rose Abdu, uh, who plays Selma, her character has, has a speech uh, later in the season about being the only woman in a writer's room for years. And like, it's, they're mean, they're hard places, and you just have to learn to get tough and be like the funniest person then, to show them you need to be there. I think that the culture of comedy and writers' rooms has in general gotten nicer as we've become more socially aware. Um, and it's, it's not cool to be a mean jerk in the writers' room. A few years ago, one of those writers from that first job reached out to you. He was one of the people you kind of thought of as a bully. So you kind of got to do something that people who get bullied kind of dream of, you know, kind of have the opportunity to talk back to the bully or, I don't know, you get to tell them off in a way that you would have liked to as a younger person. What did that writer bully say to you? What was that conversation like? So he had heard me on another podcast talking about the show, and I frankly think was maybe worried about, you know, maybe me saying names, which I have no interest in doing. I have no interest, you know, these are mean writers. I have no interest in canceling people for, uh, you know, being mean jerks and writers. But um, but he reached out and he said, hey, I, I, I heard this podcast and I, I just want to make sure I wasn't one of the guys you were talking about. And without flinching, I went, oh, no, no, you were. Uh, you're exactly who I'm talking about. In fact, I'm I'm scared of you, and I'm I'm actually like kind of shaking talking to you right now. I'm terrified of you. And he was shocked. He was very surprised. <laughs> he was like, I I I was because on that job he was also a, a, a kind of lower level writer, and he's like, I, honestly, I didn't even track that I was being mean to you. I was um, I was just worried about myself, and then I did. I did call him out when I said, listen, man, I, 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 I not, I'm not supposed to know this, but I, I do know for a fact you do have something against me. And then he's like, okay, man, yeah, maybe our styles of comedy aren't the same. And, and then I brought up, I said, well, you know, you and I actually have similar backgrounds in comedy. And I brought up some of our similarities. And I said, and I, I, maybe, maybe part of the reason you don't find me funny or, or don't think I'm funny is, be, is because I, I, not because I'm a woman, but because you've been... The whole world has catered to your lens and you haven't learned perhaps how to empathize or sympathize with the point of view of someone who isn't exactly you and doesn't have your exact experience. I went, maybe. Now you're, of course, well known for the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that you co-created. And you uh, have said that songwriting particularly joke songwriting, is sort of a pattern or a math problem that you can relate to. Can you talk about the process of songwriting for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Yes. Well, with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, it was such a hard needle to thread because we always needed songs 
that would both serve the moment at hand and, and, and really be like the emotional high of an episode. So it had to serve a certain emotional high plus make some sort of, potentially make some sort of thematic point that we were overall trying to make with the episode. And how do you make that funny? Can you give a, an example of a favorite song? Yeah, yeah. So season two, my character Rebecca's deciding between a bunch of guys. It's She was in emotional turmoil and it was like, well, she's in emotional turmoil. This is a place where we would do a musical number. The emotion is heightened where it's heightened enough for her to burst into song or with Rebecca Bunch, she needs to almost um, imagine herself in a music video to make sense of her life. Because that was often our logic of why we were bursting into song is people seeing themselves in genre pieces to make sense of what was going on. And, And then we landed, okay, well, what is she feeling in this episode? She's feeling torn between two men. All right. What's a genre where someone is both torn between men, feeling maybe a little, um, a little, a little naughty, but but is kind of liking it? And I thought of Marilyn Monroe. I thought of um, that general persona, and especially you know, uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend. And that's when we came up with the math of love triangles, and that solved all of these problems because. That was both what kind of overall what the episode was, was about. Rebecca's in a love triangle. So we're going to do a song called The Math of Love Triangles. It was also a song that was funny on its own merits because it was a person, a Marilyn Monroe type character, <laughs> misunderstanding what math was. And then also was Rebecca telling herself a story that she's this femme fatale, she's this, she's this sexy Marilyn Monroe character when she's actually being quite vain and quite selfish. So it worked on all of these levels. Well, let's hear a little bit of that. So this is the song, The Math of Love Triangles from the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The math of love triangles isn't hard to learn. You're not taking in what we're saying. We're a little bit concerned. Yes, the math of love triangles is as simple as can be. Whichever Tom or Dick I might pick the center of the triangle's little me. Actually, a triangle has multiple centers. This triangle's scaling. That's astute, so I need to decide which man's more acute. Here's Pythagoras' theorem. Will this help me choose? If not, I'll be swinging from a hypotenuse. Let's take a look at what this line bisects. Is that spelled B-I-S-E-X? Those are good puns, but please pay attention. Oh, no. Am I facing suspension? Wee! A swing! It's literal suspension! The math of love triangles isn't hard to learn. We're starting to suspect. You don't sincerely want to know about triangles. Yes, the math of love triangles is as simple as can be. I need to choose between men, but until then, the center of the triangle's little me. Is this a triangle? No, that's a shoe. Is this a triangle? No, that's you. So I'm a triangle? What? No. One, two, three, six, eight, three, go! That's the song Math of Love Triangles, co-written by my guest, Rachel Bloom, for her TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Rachel Bloom is currently starring in the new Hulu series Reboot. We'll talk more after a break. 
I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, back with writer, actor, and performer Rachel Bloom. She stars as a comedy writer in the new Hulu series, Reboot. It's about writers and cast members rebooting a family sitcom from the early 2000s. Rachel Bloom is probably best known for co-creating and starring in the Emmy Award-winning show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Now, you wrote, I think it's um, 157 songs for the show. Um, And you wrote the songs with your um, writing partner, Jack Dolgen, who you worked with since you were doing viral videos um, in your early 20s. And Adam Schlesinger, who was a member of the Fountains of Wayne, he wrote the song That Thing You Do for the Tom Hanks movie. He wrote for the Tonys. He wrote, uh, you know, across the board, so many different places. And he, he tragically... Uh, died of COVID-related illnesses at the beginning of the pandemic. He was such an early case back in the spring of 2020. Um, I want to play another song or a song that you all wrote together. It's called The End of the Movie. Can you talk about writing that song, the kind of song you were inspired by it, and where it kind of falls on the show? Yeah, um, it's actually such a good example of the songwriting process. So, um <sighs> We were at a dark night of the soul moment. And in this specific episode, which is in season three, it was actually the episode that Aline and I had always wanted to write for the show from the moment we pitched the show, which is an episode in which Rebecca is telling herself, now I'm the villain. Now I'm the sexy, vengeful villain. I am in, I am Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. This is who I am now. I am out to get revenge. And it's this song where she has really messed everything up. She's not a sexy a sexy villain. She's just messed things up and she's emotionally broken and we needed a song for that. And um, I wrote a song called, I remember, If Only You Could See This Montage Too, um, which was sung by the group or almost like a, a narrator voiceover saying, Rebecca, don't be sad. If only you could see this montage. And it was a very good song. But Aline said, is there, is there something else that can be even more global about how she's seeing her life as this clean narrative, but, but that's not right. She's been seeing things the wrong way. We were banging our heads, and I remember I was at a table with Aline, Adam, and Jack, and I said, okay, so really what you want to do is, is have a song that's like, life's not a movie, life, life is a series of gradual revelations that occur over a period of time. And Adam goes, wait, wait, say that again. And I was like, it's just, I, and he's like, that's the chorus. And it was so funny because Adam otherwise had always lobbied for very succinct choruses. So the fact that he's like, no, 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 this song's actually great. And I remember he went into my office and, and got on my piano and just started playing, life is a gradual series of revelations that occur over a period of time. And, and we just together (laughs) wrote this song that was so the opposite of how we'd usually written songs. There was almost no rhyme scheme because it was about how life doesn't have a clean narrative and a clean pattern. And Adam just got it. And it's this beautiful ballad and he just heard it instantly. And, and it was sung by Josh Groban, uh, And it was just like that moment of brilliance from Adam being like, no, 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 that's the chorus. You might not think that's the chorus, but that's the chorus. And he was so right. 
Well, in the show, like you just said, in the show, the song is sung by a cameo from uh, Josh Groban. But on the original soundtrack for season three is the demo, which was sung by Adam Schlesinger. So let's hear a little bit of it. So this is the end of the movie Whoa, whoa, whoa But real life isn't a movie No, no, no You want things to be wrapped up neatly The way that stories do You're looking for answers But answers aren't looking for you Because life is a gradual series of revelations that occur over a period of time It's not some carefully crafted story It's a mess and we're all gonna die If you saw a movie that was like real life You'd be like, what the hell was that movie about? It was really all over the place Life doesn't make narrative sense Nah. We tell ourselves that we're in a movie Whoa, whoa, whoa Each one of us thinks we got the starring role Roll, roll, roll But the truth is sometimes you're the lead And sometimes you're an extra Just walking by in the background Like me, Josh Groban Because life is a gradual series of revelations that's the song, The End of the Movie, written by our guests Rachel Bloom, Jack Dolgen, and Adam Schlesinger, who's singing here on this version. Man, I hadn't listened to that Adam demo in a while and just hearing saying, it's a mess and we're all going to die is, ugh. Now, he died tragically of COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, he was such an early case back in March of 2020. And in fact, he was sick at the same time you were giving birth to your daughter. Um, you guys were in the hospital at the same time. And, you know, not that we need to remind listeners, but it was such a sad, tough time, you know, March 2020. Um you were, you know, because you were having your daughter, she was also in the NICU um, early on. So, you know, there, there were all those issues with hospital visits then. Plus, you know, your close friend and collaborator was in the hospital. You write about this time in your book. It must have been so difficult and strange. Yeah. Um, and it's only now, and actually in, in this new show that I'm doing that I'm that I'm making more more sense of it but it was yeah it was just the most awful time it was the most awful time of of my life and and I mean you know life life not making narrative sense like the weird thing with my personal experience of what happened in in March 2020 was it both didn't make any sense like I I gave birth and then the night I gave birth I found out Adam was on a ventilator. I, I didn't know he had COVID. So it was the first I f found out he was sick. And I had just seen my daughter in the NICU. And the weird thing was my daughter was in the NICU for something called TTN. I forget what it stands for. It's basically when a baby has fluid in their lungs that hasn't been expelled from the womb. It's actually a very common thing that happens. And 10, 10 to 15% of babies born go to the NICU, which no one had told me. Um, 
But anyway, so I, I had just seen my baby and she was on a ventilator and then I'm told Adam's on a ventilator and it, and it felt like it made narrative sense, but in a horrible way. It felt just like cosmic and very interconnected and I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like how much that made sense. And I didn't like how much the narrative that I dreaded in the week, because he died after a week my daughter was born, uh, like, like basically almost to the day, that entire week I was like, please don't make this the story of in my life, one life is entering and another life is exiting. I, I don't want that narrative. I don't want this to be the narrative. I don't want this to be true. And I was rejecting that narrative. And that, and that is, of course, what happened. You wrote over 150 songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with Adam Schlesinger. Is it hard to write songs now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been writing before I met Adam. But I think that Adam was such a pro. And so the thing that I got used to, and Jack got used to over the course of four years, was that we always had Adam. Yeah, okay, we're going to do a pass on this song. But you know what? Adam's going to tell us what he thinks of this song. And Adam is like the kind of final stopgap, right? And then that went away. And so as a songwriter, what I'm doing now is like on, I'm working on this new live show and I, I have very purposefully um, kind of written every song with a different person because I'm, I'm in search of, okay, post writing 157 songs with this dynamic, like who am I as a writer now? I don't have that. I don't have the person who's gonna tell me everything's gonna be okay and this song is gonna be okay because that's what it felt like for me and Jack for four years. We always had the person who we knew at the end of the day was going to make the song okay. And so very, you know, very selfishly that went away. And for the first couple months after Adam died, I was grieving him as a, a person. And then as I got back into writing, I really started grieving him as a partner. And the, and the times that Jack and I have, have written together, um, we, you know, we'll say things like, oh God, if Adam were here, he'd have the, he'd, he'd know, he'd have the answer for this. Ah, what are we, what, what's that next line? What are we going for? And we, you can always, you can almost like hear his advice, but, but at the end of the day, he's not there with the answers. It's uh, very hard and, um, I don't know, I, this is, a, this is my first, this is really my, the first time I've been through grief, went through grief like that. I lost my grandparents, but there is something about when you lose grandparents, there's a, there's a preparation. You, I mean, I lost two of my grandparents before I really had memories. And my grandparents, when they passed away, I was in college and they were, they were quite old. And it was, it was sad, but there was this kind of, you know, there was this decline. There was this slow decline. I, I've ne I'd never lost someone suddenly like this. And it's uh, shocking. And it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Our guest is actor, writer, and songwriter Rachel Bloom. She's best known for her TV series, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She and her songwriting partners received a lot of Emmy nominations for their songs, finally winning an Emmy for Outstanding Music and Lyrics in 2019. Rachel Bloom now stars in the Hulu comedy series called Reboot. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. 
This is Fresh Air. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, back with writer and actor Rachel Bloom. She stars as a comedy writer in the new Hulu series, Reboot. It's about the writers and cast members rebooting a family sitcom from the early 2000s. Rachel Bloom is known for co-creating and starring in the Emmy Award-winning show, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Before we get back to our interview, here's a song from the third season of the show. It's called Let's Generalize About Men. still are a self-proclaimed theater kid. And then you came to New York, to NYU, um, to pursue... Was that musical theater that you came to New York to pursue? Yes. But it wasn't, you know, you write about this in the book, it wasn't what you thought uh, it would be like. It wasn't kind of like this uh, paradise of for, of musical theater for you. No. Well, there were a couple of things working against me. The first was... I had terrible self-discipline learned in high school. I mean, I think I had, um, I, I recently in the past year got diagnosed with ADHD and under that umbrella, a lot of things that I already knew about like depression and anxiety kind of all fall under that umbrella. And when I think about back to when I was 17, 18, 19, I just, I, I had no, I had terrible self-discipline, so I'd go to bed late, which when you're when you're a, a majoring in musical theater, classes start at 9 a.m. and you're you're there nine to four. You you have to be really on your game. You have to go home, you have to rehearse. And I had really, really bad self-discipline. My eyes were uh, bigger than my stomach, uh, so to speak, in I, I kind of my my life. So that that set me up badly. And then separately, the program I was in, it was a lot of people. I mean, there were, I think there were 80 kids in my freshman class alone, which is a lot for a musical theater program. So I very much felt like just a number. I very much felt like my whole self wasn't being taken in or appreciated because there were just too many kids in the class. And then I also came into school with, this is technical, but like swollen vocal folds. I've always had problems with being hoarse, my voice just kind of runs sensitive and hoarse. And 
Uh, and coupled with the fact I was suddenly then, I, I had no sleep discipline. So I was running on little sleep and I always felt hoarse and I would hear other kids and they sounded so crisp and so clear and I felt very insecure. And so it, it was all this storm of, um, I was not my best self. And I knew in the back of my head, I wanted to to write. And so on a whim, I auditioned for this sketch comedy group at NYU. And I just, I fell in love with sketch comedy. Specifically, I fell in love with writing sketch comedy because sketch comedy, um, first, the way that I learned it, there was there was almost this math and this set of organizing principles that felt so freeing. It gave me a structure to organize my often chaotic thoughts. And I fell in love with the math of writing sketch comedy. And also... I hadn't told myself my whole life, I want to be a, bro- a sketch comedy star. I'd said, I want to be on Broadway. I want to be an actress. But I'd never said I want to write sketch comedy. So it was the first time that I pursued something without all this emotional baggage tied to it. And because of that, I was comfortable writing sketches to the best of my abilities and failing. Writing to the best of my abilities and failing, which is the only way you get good. And it felt so freeing in contrast to everything I was doing in the musical theater program. You and your husband are both in comedy and you gave birth to your daughter in 2020. And so she's um, you know, over two right now. Um, have you thought about what you'll do if she's interested in performing in comedy? Yeah, I think our goal for her... Well, currently we're raising her in Los Angeles. So he and I have no template for what it's like to grow up in Los Angeles with two parents who are writer performers. I, Our parents couldn't have been further from that. So we just don't want her to be, uh, you know, a jerk. We want her to know the value of seeking out your own happiness for yourself, the value of hard work. So I think that like regardless of what she goes into, we want her to have that value. I mean, it would be, sure, was there a part that would be so cool if she went into performing? Of course, but it's not um, something I'm putting on her or even hoping for. I just, I just kind of, I just want her to be happy and, and to um, feel fulfilled as, as fulfilled as anyone can in the terror that is existence. Well, Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Bloom spoke to Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Rachel Bloom stars in the new Hulu comedy series, Reboot. A new episode of the show drops today. Coming up, Maureen Corrigan reviews Celeste Ng's new novel. This is Fresh Air. Celeste Ng is best known for her 2017 best-selling novel, Little Fires Everywhere, which was set in the upscale suburb of Shaker Heights, Ohio. That novel was made into a Hulu series starring Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says Eng's latest novel, called Our Missing Hearts, is set in a world that simultaneously reflects and amplifies our current anxious realities. Here's her review. That classic no-win option comes courtesy of Robert Frost's 1920 poem, Fire and Ice, in which he imagines the end of the world arriving via all-consuming desire, for conquest perhaps, or icy hatred. 
Frost's general categories still hold up in contemporary dystopian fiction, whether it's the fever of a pandemic, as in Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven or Ling Ma's Severance, or the sub-zero misogyny of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Celeste Ng's latest novel, Our Missing Hearts, also leans towards ice as it imagines the end of things, in this case the end of American democracy being precipitated by the chill of mass indifference. Fear muffles freedom of expression and obliterates any books or people suspected of dissent. In her author's note, Ng says that the world she's summoned up in our missing hearts isn't exactly our world, but it isn't not ours either. It's the novel's close congruity to our current off-kilter reality so easily tipped here into the twilight zone that makes our missing hearts even more unsettling than many other more extreme dystopian visions. The opening section of Our Missing Hearts has the feel of a YA crossover novel, starting with our main character, a 12-year-old boy named Bird, who lives with his father, a former college professor now mysteriously demoted to shelving books in the campus library. Bird's mother, Margaret, a poet, vanished without explanation some three years earlier. Margaret was a PAO, a person of Asian origin, a Kung Pao, as some of Bird's classmates taunt. They also call her a traitor, someone who violated something called the Pact Law, preserving American culture and traditions. Bird learns early from his white father that it's better not to respond to provocation. Just keep on walking, his father says, if passers-by stare, their gazes like centipedes on Bird's face. One day, Bird receives a letter, a sheet of paper, really, filled with ballpoint drawings of cats. Bird knows the letter is from his mother. He recognizes the handwriting on the envelope and dimly remembers a Japanese folktale she'd tell him about a boy and cats. How do you find information in a world where conducting research is dangerous, given the fact that all electronic devices are under surveillance? Bird stumbles on the answer by visiting a place considered too obsolete to monitor, the good old brick-and-mortar public library filled with print. There, he eventually connects with an underground network of librarians dedicated to rescuing disappeared books and people. That ingenious plotline alone about librarians as resistance fighters is enough to garner our missing hearts a whole lot of love from readers and, of course, the American Library Association. But it's in the second section of this novel, a flashback where we learn how what's called the crisis happened in America, where Ng's writing becomes richer and her story more disturbing in its near familiarity. Here are excerpts from Margaret's extended recollection, beginning with an economic downturn. It started slowly at first, the way most things did, 
Shops began to shudder, here and there at first, like cavities in teeth, and suddenly whole blocks were empty all over the country. Almost imperceptibly, the story of the crisis had begun to solidify. Soon enough, it would harden, like silt from turbid water settling in a thick band of mud. We know who caused all this, people were beginning to say, fingers pointed firmly east. Suspicious eyes swiveled to those with foreign faces, foreign names. Anti-Asian violence, children taken away from their parents by the government, nativist resentment in the land of immigrants, our missing hearts reflects our headlines back to us, but it also powerfully and persuasively offers hope for changing those headlines. In a final moving turn, the novel dramatizes how bearing witness through art and simply speaking up can melt indifference. That sounds sentimental, I know, but Ng's own masterful telling of this tale of governmental cruelty and the shadow armies of ordinary citizens who both facilitate and resist is its own best testimony to the unpredictable possibilities of storytelling. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberto Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.